Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening. Uh, I'm uh, pleased to introduce my friend and colleague, Francesca Pavarella, who is going to tell you a story this evening about nature's shapes and patterns and the instabilities that create them. Francesca graduated with a degree in physics from the University of Turin. In uh, 1993, and received his PhD in geophysics from the University of Genoa in 1998. He was a postdoc uh, at both the Woods Hole Institution of, of Oceanography in Cape Cod and later at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in, in uh, La Jolla, California. From 2001 to 2016, he held a professorship at the University de Lecce, uh, and he joined us at New York University Abu Dhabi as a visiting professor in 2016 and as an associate professor of mathematics in 2017. Francesco's research focuses on developing and studying mathematical models for geophysical fluids and earth systems processes. His main focus has been on convection and fluids, but he also works on vortex dynamics, time series analysis, granular flows, and mathematical ecology, and most recently with myself and two students uh, modeling COVID on the New York University Abu Dhabi campus. Uh, and so with that, I'll uh, invite uh, Francesco to start telling us a good story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Schiffer, for, very, for the very nice introduction. And I'm really honored to be here, uh, thanks to the uh, Research Institute, NYUAD Research Institute, uh, in, in giving this talk, in this uh, discussion about uh, nature shapes and pattern. So, I'm pretty sure that uh, attaching the concept of instabilities uh, and, and, and nature shapes and pattern may be uh, not so uh, obvious to many, uh, in particular those who are not uh, into. Uh, mathematical theory of, of patterns. And uh, so let me start. Uh, uh, tonight is going to be something like a, 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 you know, a, a set of tales about uh, some phenomena that may be interesting that we see in nature. And it, when we look around ourselves, uh, we see that nature has patterns, has structure, has shapes. This obviously has uh, captured the attention of scientists uh, ever since the beginning of, of humanity. And uh, so I will start my story just by uh, quoting uh, Galileo Galilei, who in his book, Il Saggiatore, writes about uh, nature in these terms. Uh, he says, nature is like a book. And this book, and I am translating from the Italian down here, this book is written in a mathematical language. And the characters of this writing are triangles, circles, and other geometrical figures. Without, and without these tools, it is impossible even just to understand the word or what is written in this book. So this, of course, is a very famous sentence. And because Galileo was a man of his time, he said that uh, he, he essentially was thinking about uh, the mathematics of geometry. He was uh, thinking about using geometry for understanding nature. Almost all of his technical work really is uh, uh, expressed in terms of the geometry of the time, which, by the way, was essentially the geometry of the Greeks. 
So now, more modern terms, we have better theories, more advanced theories than uh, the geometry, the kind of geometries, they are still geometrical theories in some sense, but is a more advanced theory than the kind of geometry that Galileo had. And one of the main tools that uh, we have today in order to understand patterns uh, is the theory of stability and instability. So, <clears throat> when we, in, in common language, when we say that something is stable, we may very well think about uh, something like a bead that rolls freely in a cup, and uh, we know that the bead eventually will fall, will stop on the bottom of the cup, and if we nudge it, if we just perturb it or shake the cup a little bit, maybe the, the bead will, will oscillate a little bit, but eventually it will go back to its equilibrium state. And this is what we would call a stable situation. Uh, an unstable situation is when, the, when, for example, we put the bead on top of a bump, a very smooth bump, we know that there is one position and only one position which would be an equilibrium. In that very position, the bead would have no reason to move and would not move. But we also know that it's essentially impossible to set the bead exactly in that position. And even if we could, any external perturbance, just a vibration, a little breeze of air, would displace the bead for that equilibrium position and the bead would not return to the equilibrium. It would just start rolling and, and fall away. <clears throat> so this is the typical way we picture stability and instability. And uh, there is nothing wrong in this. Um, let me just uh, say something uh, about instability. Uh, what I just described, uh, the bead that starts rolling away from its equilibrium position, is what we call the instability. Another very important question would be, what stops the bead? Where does the bead go? And uh, so, which in technical language would be the equilibration of the instability. I won't really cover this topic tonight. That is uh, uh, just as interesting as the onset of the instability. However, it's uh, highly technical, quite difficult to treat that subject without heavily using mathematics. And most importantly, why most of the instabilities have this thing in common, that there is an equilibrium state. If you perturb this equilibrium, you do not return to that equilibrium. The process, instead, the process of, of finding a new equilibrium may occur through many, many different mechanisms, and uh, giving an overview of them all is really impossible in a short time. It would, it would really require a, a, you know, something like a, a university course. So I will talk about just the onset of instability. Now let's go back to our topic, patterns. What has the story of the bead to do with patterns? Well, at this stage, nothing, because this particular picture of instability essentially is oblivious of uh, space. Uh, in, in this story, in the story of the bead, there is only time, but uh, we don't have uh, a spatial extent. <clears throat> and so I will illustrate how putting space into a picture of instability will help to create a pattern. And, and the first example that I will, I will give 
is the formation of river meanders. Now, we all know that uh, rivers, uh, essentially, unless you, you build some, some structures that keep them straight, rivers don't go straight. Unless, well, maybe uh, when they are still in a mountain, when the, the, when the ground is sloping very, uh, very steeply, uh, they will just follow the, the, the line of maximum, of maximum descent. They will follow you know, the, the steepness of the, of the terrain. But when finally the river finds itself uh, on a flatland, even though there is still a slight incline, uh, the river won't go straight. It will start making meanders. <clears throat> and, and these meanders are a characteristic pattern, and has been, these patterns have been studied quite a lot. And for centuries, actually, people have tried to give an explanation with not so much success until finally somebody had the right idea. And this somebody is pictured in this image. Yes, it's Albert Einstein, the same person uh, that uh, gave us uh, relativity and the photoelectric and the theory of the electric effect and the theory of brown motion. <clears throat> Albert Einstein actually was an expert in fluid mechanics. And uh, uh, in 1926, he came up with this paper. Here you see the beginning of the English translation, and uh, below you see the beginning of the original uh, paper written in German, on why a river that uh, starts straight, start straight actually should eventually form these meander patterns. And so his, his explanation goes like this. Okay, let's start with a river that already has some curve. These, uh, the, the, the things that you see are uh, Einstein's original drawings in his paper. And so he draws a river that already, already has a curve towards the left. He could have drawn this uh, less emphasized, more straight, but still you need uh, to understand this, this phenomenon, you still to start, you need to start with, with something that already has a slight curve. Uh, okay, so now let's look at the section through these two points, A, B, the vertical section through these two points. Now, a fluid parcel here on top of, uh, of the, uh, on top of the, uh, uh, the surf, close to the surface of the river, because the current overall will turn left, will experience a centrifugal, a centrifugal force that will push it towards the right. Just like when in the car you turn left, uh, you feel a, a, a slight push towards the right. <clears throat> of course, a parcel on the bottom will feel just the same push. However, this push will be at least partially blocked by the uh, viscous uh, uh, interaction with the bottom. And therefore, Einstein concludes that there will be a net circulation, a net current, because the, the force on top will be free to act and the force on the bottom will be uh, mostly uh, contrasted by, by the friction. Uh, at the end, there will be a circulatory pattern that will develop so that there will be the overall, the parcels on close to the surface will move towards the right bank of the river, then will sink, then will, will slow slowly flow towards the bottom, and then finally they will upwell and resurface on the other side. Of course, this circulatory motion is overimposed to the main current of, uh, of the river, and, uh, and therefore what results is that if you follow a water parcel, this water parcel will just go around 
making a helical motion. Now, of course, this helical motion exists only when the river bends, when the river has a curve, because when the river goes straight, there is absolutely no reason to have this helical motion. But uh, now consider the fact that uh, a river is, uh, has banks that in general are made out of mud or sand, a very fine material which is easily eroded. So this helical motion essentially will take material away from, in this case, the right side, the right bank of the, of the uh, river, and will deposit uh, after half a turn on the left side. Okay, so now we have a reason for the erosion, uh, a mechanism that enhances the curve. So if we return here, we see that as time goes on, and this is a slow process, it may take tens of years, centuries, uh, depending on the situation, how quick is the current. In time, this initial bend will become more enhanced. Not only that, but the more enhanced will be, the curver, uh, the, the stronger will be the, the centrifugal acceleration experienced by the, by the water, and therefore, the further will proceed this phenomenon. This really is uh, an instability. So, start now with a straight river. If you start with a straight river, of course, if the river is absolutely perfectly straight, there is no reason for it to bend. But if for whatever reason, it already has a tiny little small bend, then this phenomenon on that bend will start eroding the bend, will start enhancing the bend, amplifying the bend. And, and this is exactly the same thing as uh, the bead on top of the, of the hill, on the, of the bump, of the smooth bump. If the bead is exactly on top, there is no reason for it to move. But if you just nudge it just a little bit, it will move down in the same direction and enhance is, is fall. However, there is a distinction with the bead, <coughs> with the case of the bead. Now, this helical motion comes with something which is new. It comes with a characteristic length, which is the distance with, between two passages in this helical motion. And this means, for example, that uh, you cannot have a, a, a river bending with bends smaller than, this, uh, than the distance between two of these helical turns for the simple reason that there will be enough material to be deposited to create this bend. And at the same time, <clears throat> this process will become very ineffective if uh, repeated over many bends. So this means that the distance between these helical, uh, these helical uh, passages uh, essentially set the sides of the bends. So if we turn back to this uh, river picture, we see that all these turns, all these meanders, by and large, have roughly the same size. You don't have meanders 10 times bigger than these or 10 times smaller than these sides. So, this means that now we, when we add space, typically, not always, but typically, we have that instability, instabilities occur on some spatial scales. They amplify some patterns. Now, just for completeness, uh, most, most, most of the focus uh, in this paper by, by Einstein was uh, on bias laws, the fact that uh, 
in the North Hemisphere, bands typically start from uh, the uh, uh, on the right side, and uh, in the lower in the Southern Hemisphere, they start on the left side. Uh, this is not. Uh, uh, this is an interesting story, additional story. It has uh, something to do with Coriolis force. Uh, but it's not the focus of the instability. The instability would occur anyway. Th that is just a trigger. And in any case, in this this is picture of uh, uh, a river in the Amazon forest uh, where uh, uh, essentially we are at the equator, so the Coriolis uh, uh, force is essentially negligible. So now <clears throat> this was just uh, an example, and I, I wanted to put it in there because not many people, I think, uh, knew about this, uh, this story. Uh, the next example is uh, much better known, is there's much more known, uh, at least uh, within fluid dynamics. Uh, and uh, uh, I can uh, um, describe this as uh, a series of top, of spinning tops. So here you have uh, uh, these colored lines, so the red lines uh, can be thought of as an infinite sequence of spinning tops, these black dots, uh, and the blue lines can be, uh, and, they, and these tops spin in uh, uh, counterclockwise uh, direction. On the other hand, the blue lines also are infinitely many spinning tops, but they spin in the clockwise direction. And these tops, however, should be thought of as something that extends its, its influence uh, all over the space. So this top creates a velocity field that can carry on material with as the top rotates in, in this round motion. And the same, this other top, and you should imagine infinitely many other tops. Now, this also means that each top may would transport around itself, will try to transport around itself all other tops. Now, if the tops initially are perfectly aligned, it should be easy to, to uh, idealize, to, to, very, to conceptualize the idea that uh, the vertical components of this velocity field will just uh, uh, zero each other, will contrast each other. So, for example, the, this top on the right side will try to push this point downward, but the top on the left side will try to push uh, the same point upward with equal and opposite velocity. So all the vertical component, if you repeat these at all, for all tops, for all points, you will always get a zero net velocity for the vertical components. But uh, the horizontal components in, instead, they will just add up together. And the result is that uh, alternate with these uh, lines of tops, there will be essentially jets. You can imagine these like conveyor belts <clears throat> that move uh, alternately towards the right and towards the left and towards the right, towards the left and towards the right. Okay, this is uh, an initial setup. It may be somehow artificial. It may sound somehow artificial, but now let's imagine that uh, you couldn't arrange these tops in a perfectly straight line that there is just some little bit of displacement, just some tiny irregularity in this initial symmetric arrangement so that uh, this cancellation is imperfect. And in fact, in this, initial, in this figure, there is such an initial 
imperfection. There is just a random noise, some, just some randomness. You don't see it, I don't see it, just because uh, it's so small that the eye cannot perceive it. But I know that it is there because uh, I created this pattern, this setup, and I know that I put some little noise in, in there. So now I will just start a simulation and show you what happens after a while. So initially, now the simulation has started. Initially, you don't see much happening, but in fact, each top is displacing, is displacing each other top a little bit. And finally, these motions become apparent. You start having these lines of tops, line of tiny fluid parcels that swirl around their axis to self-organizing vortices. And these vortices then go, undergo a very complicated dynamics they merge, sometimes they uh, form pairs which then start to travel, uh, they shed filaments, and if you look carefully, for example, you see that around these filaments, like here, for example, the same instability can repeat and you can form further vortices into the filaments. Here, for example, it appears that a little bit of instability is also going on. So this very, very complicated dynamics that goes well beyond the initial instability is actually triggered by that initial instability. And in these vortex patterns, uh, you may have recognized uh, some patterns that actually occur in nature. Now, this is uh, actually a picture taken in a laboratory, and this is a courtesy of Professor Jun Zhang, <coughs> my colleague at the uh, Center of Stability, Instability, and Turbulence. And this is uh, uh, a uh, soap film, which has been created by a special apparatus in, in the lab, uh, in Jun's lab. Uh, in, into this soap film, there are some two strings, two very tiny strings, which are attached on the on one end and are free to float into the soap film. And as they float, they produce instabilities that in turn produce vortices, just like the vortices that you have seen in the simulation. Now, let me be clear. This shear instability, this is the, the, the technical name or barotropic instability, is only one of many instabilities that form vortices. However, <clears throat> once the vortices are formed, uh, even though there are several instabilities that form, that form vortices, their subsequent dynamics has many, many things in common. And so here you can see vortices, uh, vortices essentially in a, in a uh, soap bubble. Uh, in this picture, you can see vortices on top of clouds formed by a very similar kind of instability. <coughs> uh, other vortices formed in the wake of an island. Here there is an island. This, are, this is a picture taken by satellite. So this is an island. And there is wind which uh, uh, goes from the lower left side uh, uh, corner of the, of the picture towards the upper right corner of the picture. And this wind creates uh, the instability that in turn forms these vortices. Now, of course, in this picture, the trained eyes will see many more instabilities in addition to the one that I'm talking about. But I will just stop to the vortex making instability. 
and then finally, we should be aware that uh, the ocean, even though we don't see it because our eye just see, would see a blue surface, but if we could see the velocity field of the, of, of the, of the ocean, we would see that the oceans are full of vortices that are uh, created by many different mechanisms. In this case, uh, you see the uh, uh, North Atlantic, the North American coastline with the uh, Gulf, uh, uh, with the Gulf Stream that emerges uh, uh, just along the the Florida coastline and then detaches at Cape Hatteras and then starts meandering. These meanders break down in vortices. And these vortices really literally fill the entire Atlantic. And they and this is their dynamics over time. This uh, simulation spans about a couple of months. This is an extremely high resolution simulation. And uh, as you can see, they look quite similar, although they are not exactly the same as the vortices that you just saw before. So this was, vortices are another outcome of uh, uh, instabilities. And now I would like to talk about an instability, which is very dear to me because I kind of studied quite for, for several years, which is peculiar because, well, sometimes you find instabilities in places where you would not suspect that there will be an instability, uh, where just by intuition you would say, no, it should be stable. And, and the case that uh, I would like to uh, illustrate is uh, a situation where you have a, fluid, a stratified fluid, and on the bottom of your container, whatever this container could be, you have a fairly dense fluid. And then as you move upward in your container, you find less and less and less dense fluid until you have the lightest fluid just at the surface, just close to the surface. And this would be uh, the case, for example, in a lake, uh, when the sun shines on top of the lake, in particular a lake that has no rivers going in or out, uh, so it's, it's not a pond, in fact, if you wish. Uh, the sun shines on top of the pond, it warms up the top surface of the pond, and uh, as you go down into the pond, you will find progressively colder water. Now, colder water means denser water, so there you have it. It should be a very stable situation. And in fact, for ponds it is. If you produce, uh, if you throw a, a stone in the pond, if you, if whatever, if there is a burst of wind that creates waves into the pond, this wave may propagate into the interior. You would have that uh, these uh, density surfaces would oscillate a bit, but just like the bead on the bottom of the cup, uh, after a little while, everything will return to its uh, initial situation, to its initial position in which uh, you have dense fluid on the bottom and lighter fluid on the top. There is no way to have any instability. However, this is a pond. Now, if we move from the pond to the sea, we have uh, something else that may change the density of the fluid. We have uh, salinity. Now, salinity has an opposite effect with respect to temperature. High temperature tends to diminish the density of the water. High salinity tends to increase the, the, the density of the water. However, 
if the salinity were so high as in, on the top surface, so high as to overcome the effect of the temperature, you would just have uh, uh, water that would fall down on, on towards the bottom, which actually is something that occurs in some regions of the ocean. <clears throat> and it's an important phenomenon for, for climate, for the global conveyor belt. But this is not what I'm talking about. In most places, in just about every place of the ocean, there isn't enough salinity to overcome the effect of temperature. And therefore, the top layers of the ocean are still lighter than the bottom layers. So if you just look at density, you conclude that the interior of the ocean is just stable, shouldn't move. And in many places it is. However, in some other places, there is enough salinity not to overcome the density stratification, but to make this trick. So imagine that whatever perturbation creates a wave into your ocean, which is stratified as to be fresh, cold and, and, and fresh without too much salinity on the bottom and warm and salty on the top. Now, this perturbation could be really anything. It could be a burst of wind very far away that uh, has created waves that then get subducted into the interior. It could be the, the tail of a whale. It could be a submarine. It could be just about really anything. So <clears throat> this perturbation, this disturbance, would just randomly displace uh, columns of fluid, some columns of fluid a little bit up, and some columns of fluids a little bit down. Now, let's see what happens when uh, after this happens. After, after this disturbance occurs. So temperature diffuses through water fairly quickly. Uh, uh, water is a fairly good conductor of, uh, of, uh, of temperature. And therefore, uh, okay, let me just uh, uh, note, let me just uh, stress that when you displace fluid up, and, uh, and, and if you displace a fluid column up and then another fluid column just next to it down, essentially you're creating a situation in which uh, there is uh, fluid at different temperature and different salinities, one next to each other. But then, as I was saying, <coughs> temperature diffuses quite rapidly. Therefore, horizontally, temperature will become homogeneous again fairly quickly. Salinity instead does not diffuse that quickly. Uh, if you put, for example, uh, a, a cube, uh, some, some salt on the bottom of a, of a glass and you, do not, and you do not steer, that salt will stay there for quite a long time. It will take a long, long time to dissolve it spontaneously, just by diffusion. This means that the column that was upward will find itself to be just about at the same temperature as the surrounding fluid, but it will have a deficit in salinity and therefore it will be lighter. And the column that was displaced downward, <coughs> it will, uh, on the other hand, find itself with an excess in salinity, but just about the same temperature as the surrounding fluid. Therefore, it will be heavier than the surrounding fluid. So that the column that was initially displaced up, it will continue to go up, and the column that was initially down, displaced down, it will continue to go down. So here we have, here we are, we have another instability, a very strange one, which depends on the fact that temperature and salinity diffuse at different rates. And what I'm saying is not just theory, it's actually something that can be very easily 
produced in, in a kitchen. So this movie, and I will stop it, but this movie is something that I did in my kitchen. Um, the movie is actually accelerated with respect to, uh, to real time. So what you will see in the movie occurs 30 times faster than in real life. So if you do that in the, in the kitchen, I expect something that evolves very slowly. And initially, you won't see much. It will take a few minutes to, to develop the patterns. And uh, here, I, I didn't create a, a, a smooth gradient of density. I just created an initial two-layer setup. So there is uh, fresh water on the bottom, and then on the top, and fresh and cold water on the bottom. And then on top, I pour warm water with... Well, you could use salt, but if you use a kitchen or table salt, uh, you wouldn't see anything. Uh, so here I use food color that plays the role uh, of salinity, but also plays the role of visualization. It allows me to see what is going on. And, uh, and, and the recipe goes like this. You prepare a container, you put uh, some fresh water on the bottom, then uh, in, in a small pot, you, you warm up uh, your some other water, you put some fruit, uh, some food color, then you put a, a little sponge on top of the, uh, on top of the, your container, you put the warm colored fluid on top of the sponge so that no splash actually gets into the, into the container, because if you just splash the two fluids, you mix them up immediately. And if you're careful, I wasn't that careful here because you see this, all these waves, you see start, you're starting to see these finger-like patterns that uh, fall down from uh, the top layer. And, uh, okay, so let me show this again. So we have the two layers set up, and then you have this pattern, these finger-like patterns that just uh, uh, creep down and uh, in an enhanced mixing process. And of course, you would have uh, <coughs> uh, uh, symmetrically equal fingers that go up but because they don't have uh, food color in them, uh, you don't see in this. You don't see them in these movies. Now, the interesting thing, however, is uh, let me show this again, and I will stop it at the point where I want to stress my concept here. For example, uh, as you can see, these finger-like patterns again, they all have all roughly the same size. You don't see a finger which is 10 times smaller than this or 10 times bigger than this. They roughly all have the same size. And however, the perturbation that triggered this, this instability uh, didn't have any specific size. Or if you wish, the waves in this uh, container that triggered this instability must have had all sorts of sizes in a random way. So why do we have uh, this specific size. In this case, it should be fairly easy to understand why this particular instability creates only this size. And the reason is that uh, <clears throat> perturbations that are very small, if you have these uh, columns that are really, really, really small, well, they are essentially damped away by viscosity. In addition, if these structures are really small, then salinity will start diffusing almost as effectively as temperature. It will also be very very well homogenized. On the other hand, if these structures are really big, if these columns are really big, then uh, even temperature won't be able to diffuse. 
at least not quickly enough as to trigger an instability. Uh, um, there is still some instability, but it's really, really, really slow. So essentially, what I'm trying to say here to illustrate this, that there is an optimal size that uh, allows uh, temperature to diffuse laterally and salinity to be retained. And at that optimal size, you see the instability occurring. And this is the key point in pattern formation. The key point is that you start with a very random initial condition with something in which, uh, you know, a, a clumsy experimentalist like me has shaken his container, created waves of all sorts of uh, size. And then the instability amplified the unstable sizes and simply dumps away the stable sizes. So this is an extremely important point. You can start, and in this image, you have a, a graph which has been created as the superposition of many, many oscillations, many, many waves of many, many different sizes. And in fact, you can see that this thing, this function oscillates with many different sizes at many scales. Now, in a Instable in a in a typical instability, what happens is that uh, almost all of these sizes will just stay stable and therefore will be dumped away. On the other hand, <coughs> a few of these sizes will instead be amplified and keep growing, keep growing, keep growing until some other mechanism will stop their growth. And here I prepared an acoustic example. So imagine really to do this with sound waves at different frequencies. Uh, this initial condition actually contains all the frequencies that exist uh, on the keyboard on a, of a grand piano. It's uh, 88 keys, uh, all the notes on a grand piano. And imagine to press all the notes at the same time. Uh, it's going to be nasty. Uh, I, I'm uh, alerting you that uh, what you are going to hear is not going to be particularly pleasant. Because, because uh, pressing keyboards uh, uh, on the piano randomly does not produce any pleasant sound. But then, in this particular simulation, <clears throat> just about all the notes, except for three, will be damped. But those three will be, those three frequencies will actually exponentially grow. And this is what you're going to see. Both visually and acoustically, you have perceived how this uh, instability process that selectively takes some frequencies and enhances them, and instead dampens or dumps out all the other frequencies, can create a pattern. Uh, you may have some of you may have uh, uh, had recollections of those uh, cheesy science fiction B movies of the sixties, uh, where you have these wow wow sounds. Uh, that emerge out of this noise. I tried to produce something a little bit nicer than the, just the wow wow, the beating sound, but I'm not a sound engineer, therefore I, I simply couldn't manage to find an instability that creates something acoustically more pleasant. But I hope I've I, I driven home my point. Uh, 
an instability, a spatially extended instability, or frequency extended instability, is actually something that uh, is not fully unstable, but typically enhances, is unstable only on some frequencies only, or only on some spatial scales. And therefore, is uh, an amplifier of patterns. It sort of preselects some patterns, the wavy sound in this case, <clears throat> the pulsating sound in this case, and uh, simply destroy all possible patterns. So if you start with the noise, with a completely random situation, which in principle contains all possible patterns, you, your instability is picking up a single one, is picking up the pattern that will actually win in the end, that will end up being uh, the one that you see, and amplifies it. All right, so now, of course, when we talk about uh, exponential growth and something that gets amplified and amplified and amplified, inevitably, we have to talk about what initially I said I wouldn't be talking about, which is uh, what stops the instability. And as I said, there are many mechanisms to stop an instability. But here, I'm going to illustrate uh, one case in which uh, the mechanism that stops an instability is another instability. And these are still the soft fingers. So this is a, a, a three-dimensional, you only see a slice, but this is a three-dimensional simulation made on a supercomputer of the same kind of phenomenon of which represented by that little kitchen experiment before. Now, in the first panel, you see salinity. Uh, in the second, uh, not here, sorry. Uh, these are actually salinity at three different times. But uh, if I start the movie, Okay. In the first panel, you see salinity. In the second panel, you see buoyancy. Buoyancy essentially is the opposite of, of, of density. In the third panel, you see kinetic energy. And for the moment, uh, the fluid is not really moving, so kinetic energy is all black. But then as the fluid will start to move, uh, you will see this become of a lighter and lighter shade of red and yellow. And in, finally, in, this, in the fourth panel, you have... Uh, a, the, the profile of buoyancy. So this profile buoyancy is such that uh, <clears throat> low buoyancy means high density and uh, high buoyancy means low density. So this is really a stably stratified in density profile with a constant gradient. And this is just the beginning of, of the instability where these finger-like patterns are just barely starting to, to appear. But the instability now will progress very quickly the patterns, the fingers will start to move, and you see this uh, also in kinetic energy. Now comes something interesting. At this stage, the fingers start to cluster together in groups with of fingers that go in the same direction. And as this happens, they are, they are able to move much faster. So much faster, in fact, that uh, at a certain point, they will start to stir up the fluid. Uh, here, for example, you start having some sort of vertical motion that appears. And as this vertical motion appears, you start to see kinks into the buoyancy or into the density profile. So here we are witnessing another instability. The instability, the, the fingers that grow and grow and grow, and apparently nothing can stop them, are stopped by in produce this vertical motion produce this convective motion that essentially is what destroys them and mixes them up, creating these uh, 
buoyancy, which now will become more and more homogeneous. And uh, buoyancy eventually will uh, get uh, the appearance of a staircase with a profile in which density will be homogeneous in some layers, then a constant gradient, and then homogeneous in some layers, and so on. And if you let this instability go on, this is what you end up having. Uh, this is what you, you, you will get in the end. Uh, here you see the salinity field. In this image, the salinity is uh, green. The salinity field in a simulation that has formed uh, staircases. And you can see clearly three steps here. The top steps, then the middle region is a region where there is a lot of mixing, then the second step, and then a lot of mixing, and then the third step. And you have these three steps that are the result of the instability that stops the finger instability. And uh, this image and the movie that you will see in a moment have been made by my student Jonah for uh, Glimpses, uh, which is uh, 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 an art show that uh, shows the results of science under the form of uh, art. And um, here you go. As we zoom in, you see that this uh, uh, in these layers, you will recognize uh, the familiar finger-like uh, shapes uh, that you have seen in the kitchen experiment. But uh, you also see that in between the steps, in between the layers, there are regions where the fluid is moving very fast and uh, uh, as a vertical rota rotating, uh, in this motion as a vertical rotating nature. While instead, these uh, uh, layers in the middle are the regions where the fingers get produced. Now here I change, actually Jonah changed the color scheme, and you may perceive with these other colors that uh, the finger zones, the steps in this staircase, are actually regions that don't move too much, they're fairly steady, while in between the steps, down here, for example, the fluid moves with, in a much more vigorous way. And again, this is uh, a pattern which results uh, out of the instability that stops another instability. And finally, this is still the same simulation. This is kinetic energy. Here you will recognize the, the vertical motions, the, the, the convection patterns in the yellow, in yellow, while the blue, the dark blue regions are the regions that don't really move, don't move much, and they correspond to the finger-like structures. Now, unfortunately, all these uh, structures uh, are not apparent to people because they occur in the world oceans. Uh, staircases like this one have been measured by oceanographers uh, they, in, in many places, just about anywhere in the subtropical oceans, uh, in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, even in the Mediterranean, in the Tyrrhenian Sea. If you <clears throat> lower a probe from, uh, from a ship, starting at a depth of around 200 meters and down until uh, you go well below uh, 500 meters of depth, generally you find these uh, staircase-like uh, patterns. 
And uh, it is important to study them because the, the vertical mixing of temperature and salinity is actually one of the key ingredients in uh, our understanding of the global circulation of the oceans and therefore of the global heat transport of the ocean, which is important for climate. All right, and so I'm now ready to move towards the end of this discussion with a final observation. So far, I have described my instabilities, pattern forming instabilities, as something more ordered that emerges out of initial completely random perturbation. However, there is another equally good way to look at these uh, uh, pattern-forming uh, instabilities, which uh, actually has something to do with an observation made uh, uh, over a century ago by Pierre Curie. Now, all physicists know how important symmetries are, are in order to understand uh, the physical world. However, the really good physicists know that the interesting things occur when something which initially was very symmetric starts to lose some of its symmetries and retains only some part of the initial symmetry. And this is summarized in this beautiful sentence by uh, Curie, uh, which says it is the asymmetry which creates the phenomenon. So phenomena really are created by a break of symmetry, by losing symmetry. And uh, it may not be so clear what I'm talking about right now, but I hope that in a moment it will become much more clear when I will introduce something else. So now let me show you this picture, two zebras, this other picture, a human hand. This is an X-ray. I choose an X-ray because it shows that the human hand also has internal structure, the bones. And uh, and this guy, yes, this guy is Alan Turing, the uh, father the, the, of, uh, of the Turing machine, uh, the man who cracked the, the German code during World War II, um, essentially the founding father of, of computer science, not many people know that Alan Turing actually worked on several other topics, not just computer science. And this was the last paper that he wrote before uh, his untimely demise. The chemical basis of morphogenesis. So in the 50s, after the, the war, the main research attention for Turing was try to give an answer to this question. He started thinking along this line. Any multicellular living being, an animal, a plant, a fungi, start, starts as a single cell. We all have started as a single cell. And then this cell starts to split and, uh, and double, and uh, so you, you get two cells, and then four, and then eight, 16. You have what is called a morula, shown here. But still, these cells, at least initially, are just the same. Uh, they are uh, indifferentiated. Every cell is just like any other cell. Now, this structure is too symmetric. It's just too symmetric to be anything interesting. Where is the head? Where is the mouth? Uh, where is the back? Where is the front? Where is the left? Where is the light? This thing doesn't have an inside, doesn't have an outside. 
is too symmetric. If we want uh, an animal, a cat, to get out of there, or a plant, or a human being, we need this thing to lose symmetry and acquire less general symmetries. Left and right, just left and right, like, rather than a complete rotation of symmetry, for example. So how could that happen? This really was the question that uh, Turing tried to address in this paper. And at a time when very, very little was known about uh, the chemical mechanism that would produce the building of a multicellular living being, how a single cell can turn into a very well-organized aggregate of many cells of different types, many, many cells of different types, each uh, fulfilling a different role. Today, we, uh, the biologists know a lot more on this, but at the time of, uh, of Turing, very little was known. There were, of course, a lot of observation in embryology, but very little actual knowledge at the chemical level. So he started reasoning along these lines. He said there must be in the cells some chemical substances that are produced by the cells themselves, and uh, according to the concentration, if they are concentrated enough, may trigger something, may, for example, tell the cell to reproduce or something, or turn from uh, an unspecialized cell into a more specialized cell. So he started thinking about the case in which there are only two of such substances. Uh, he called them morphogenes. And uh, let me call these two substances the green stuff and the red stuff. Uh, the green stuff uh, I will call the activator, and the red stuff is going to be the inhibitor. So why activator? Because uh, I'm going to hypothesize that... Uh, the presence of the green stuff will stimulate the cell to produce both, to produce more of both the green and the red stuff. On the other hand, the presence of the red stuff will stimulate the cell to stop producing both the red and the green stuff. So in this sense, the green stuff activates, stimulates the, the cell to produce further chemicals and the red instead say the cells not don't produce further chemicals. Now, Let's put two cells, one next to each other. And both cells will contain some amount of the green stuff and some amount of the red stuff. However, these amounts may just be affected by the usual random fluctuations. And therefore, let's say that uh, on the left side, the cell on the left side will have a little bit more than uh, of these two mm, or these two substances of these two morphogenes, and the cell on the right will have a little bit less. Furthermore, let's say that uh, the red stuff, the inhibitor, is able to uh, diffuse through the cellular membrane in a relatively easy way. On the other hand, the green stuff uh, won't be able to pass through the cellular membrane that quickly. If it sounds a little bit like temperature and salinity, well, that's because it is. It's a very similar instability. So now you have set all the stage, and uh, if you just think about it, uh, there's going to be an instability. Because uh, if initially the cell on the left has an excess of these morphogenes, the inhibitor will just go to the right, and uh, some inhibitor will be, will be lost into the uh, left cell. 
On the other hand, the left cell won't lose that much uh, uh, activator, and therefore it will start produce more of this, more of both stuff. And therefore, the, the further this uh, left cell will produce these uh, substances, the further inhibitor will go to the will just diffuse to the right cell, which will just uh, act as a damper of inhibitor, and the activator will remain in the left cell, stimulating growth and triggering the left cell to do whatever whatever we will have to do, whatever that substance is telling the cell to do. So here we have, again, an instability. If the two cells initially start with an extremely similar, well, if the two cells initially start with exactly the same concentration of both inhibitor and uh, uh, activator, nothing happens. But if for whatever reason, one of the two cells has a slightly, even slightly different uh, concentration of these two quantities, of these two substances, then the difference will be amplified in time. Here we are again, the bead is rolling down the slope. But this is just two cells. Now what happens when we have many, 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 many cells creating a tissue? Well, this is what I'm going to show you in this last movie. So picture this gray slate as made by many, 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 many cells. And initially, they pretty much have all the same amount of activator and inhibitor. And it looks really symmetric, boringly. It's really boring. There are, there are so many symmetries, you, you see nothing. It's really all the same. But uh, if you let the instability go, however, you may, I don't know how good the visualization through, through online actually is, but you may notice that I put in this initial condition some just, slight, just some slight noise. There is a little bit of fuzziness in this grayness. Oops, sorry. And then if I let this start, here we go again. The instability, in this case, the Turing instability, is selecting a specific pattern. It's just dumping out of that initial noise, is quickly dumping out everything which is not compatible with the instability, and it's extremely amplifying uh, what is compatible with the instability until this pattern emerges. Now, the specific shape of the pattern, the specific labyrinthine shape of the pattern, let me show this again, actually depends on what happens after the instability, beyond the instability. And you can have, uh, therefore, different equations, or if you wish, different chemical reactions that form different patterns, or even just changing the parameters of the same chemical equation. You may have many different patterns. You may have hexagons, you may have spots, you may have these labyrinth patterns, you may have all sorts. And this is just with two chemical components. You can have three, four, ten, as many as you wish, and therefore you can create patterns that may be really, really, really complicated, just as complicated as an entire living being. But this specific, this specific uh, labyrinthine pattern is something that uh, you, you, you will surely have seen if you ever went snorkeling in these waters. If you have taken your mask and fin, you went snorkeling uh, on any of the coral reefs of the Emirates, you will have seen this sort of brain corals that uh, uh, show a labyrinthine pattern very similar to that to the previous one. Just out of curiosity for completeness, the equations that give rise to this pattern are called the Brusselator equation. 
which were uh, proposed by Prigogine in the in the 60s as a first example of chemical reaction that can produce pattern patterns uh, according to, to, to Turing's theory. And they are called Brusselator because uh, the study was made in Brussels and uh, in honor of the city, this is the name that was chosen. And so there we have it. Uh, now uh, we have realized that uh, not only instabilities are something that can amplify patterns out of a very uh, random and noisy initial situation, but also are something that uh, out of a boring, uh, complete and absolute symmetry can just uh, select a specific subsymmetry which makes things interesting. And uh, <clears throat> this is my conclusion. It seems that uh, in the last century or, or so, in the last 70 years, Scientists with this idea of spatially extended instability, not just the instability of the beads, but a more complicated form of instability in which some pattern gets amplified and other and everything which doesn't matter really gets dumped away, have found a way to mathematically describe the patterns that we see in nature. And when I say nature, I really mean a continuum uh, where at one end of the spectrum there are purely physical phenomena and at the other end there are purely biological phenomena and in the middle there is uh, everything else which uh, uh, mixes freely physics, uh, chemistry, chemistry, biology, biology and physics uh, and that means really nature. Thank you for your attention. I'm trying to start my video. Uh, it doesn't okay. seem to come here. And uh, so, okay, uh, maybe you don't need to see me, but um, this is Schaefer again, the person who introduced Francesco. And uh, if you type some questions into the Q&A box, there we go. Uh, I will read them and Francesco will answer them. There's a couple in there, well, one right now. Um, so I'll go ahead and read this. It's an interesting and good question. I think you'll enjoy it. So from Gary Hartstein. Uh, so it would appear that there are constraints inherent at the start of an instability that generate patterns. The explanations, however, appear to be marvelously logical post hoc. For example, temperature diffusion versus salinity diffusion. So the question is, given a system and a perturbation, can the relevant constraints and therefore the patterns be predicted a priori? Well, of course, at this level of uh, specificity, which is very low, everything may, seem, may sound like uh, a post-hoc uh, explanation. Uh, however, this is not how the actual science of these uh, instabilities has worked historically. Uh, typically, what happens is that you see a phenomenon and then you start uh, thinking, uh, oh, there may be some instability that produces that phenomenon. And, uh, and, and then you go in the lab, you try to isolate, to reproduce, for example, with a laboratory experiment that isolates just the single ingredients that you think may lead to this instability that you postulate, uh, you hypothesize that may lead to this phenomenon. 
and see if the phenomenon happens in your lab. Or if you're a, you know, a, a simulator modeler, you may try to write down an equation and then uh, solve that on a, on a computer and see if that equation that only has those ingredients matches the phenomenon that you see. This is how we can understand that it's really temperature and salinity, for example, that produce all fingers. Uh, this is because we have made experiments with changing the, the, the various parameters and matching them with equations that, for example, predict a growth rate, and the growth rate that is predicted by the equations is just what you see in the experiments. Uh, this is why we are confident that that is the mechanism. Of course, in many other situations, it's not so clear. For example, just before I say there are many, many, many instabilities that produce vortices. So if you, if you just see a vortex, you just don't know what is the instability that produced that. Uh, right now, for example, there is a, a very strong debate on what is the exact nature of the vortices that you see in Jupiter. If you look at the uh, satellite uh, uh, images, they are beautiful of uh, uh, Jupiter vortices. Well, initially, scientists, the planetary scientists, thought that were, those were shallow phenomena, and therefore the instability that would produce those uh, would be fairly similar to the instabilities that produce the vortices in the ocean. Different fluid, but still the same kind of mechanism. Now people are starting to think that, hey, maybe those are actually the surface expression of something that goes really, really deep into the core of the, ocean, of the, of the planet. And therefore, it's a kind of a different instability that would create those, even though they look vortices, just in the same way as the vortices in the ocean. So uh, you have to work out, in, as I said, in a scientific way, putting forward a hypothesis and then trying to prove them or disprove, man, disprove them by a careful combination of theory and experiment and numerical simulations. Maybe I would add to that, yeah, so the, the, the instability itself is often somewhat predictable and how fast it will grow, but the patterns that emerge from an instability are hard to predict in advance. I suppose that's fair to say too, right? Yeah. Just as well. And this is actually the gray area where I, where I say that wouldn't go. Yeah. <coughs> um, so I have a couple other thank yous in the, in the Q&A. I don't see any other questions at the moment. Here we go. So uh, another question from Cynthia Johnson. Would this offer a different initiation to the creation of the universe from a big bang to maybe a steady stream with an imperfection? So uh, a deeper question, but yeah, so feel free to speculate <laughs> in the creation of the universe. Well, uh, <laughs> this is actually this is actually a question that would be best asked to... to uh, an oceanographer, uh, not an oceanographer, but a cosmologist. But for what I know about cosmology, uh, we actually can see uh, an, the effect on instability every time that we look up in the sky at night. Uh, the Big Bang theory essentially tells us that the whole universe started as a, a sphere of gas, very homogeneous. And in fact, the background radiation has fluctuations that are, if I remember correctly, something like one part every 10,000. There are tiny fluctuations. So essentially, it's something really, really smooth and homogeneous. And 
And then, and this is what happened something like 13 billion years ago. And now you look in the universe and you see voids and galaxies and voids and galaxies and stars. So all this fluid, all this material has clamped together. And this is actually a well-known instability. Uh, in fact, uh, historically, one of the first recognized instability, which is called the genes instability, is a gravitational instability, such that if you start with a self-gravitating fluid, which is completely homogeneous, just except some tiny little random uh, uh, perturbation, these initial perturbations as, act as seeds that attract gravitationally all the rest of the fluid, and therefore you form clumps. Now, there is a lot of work in cosmologies on the specific details of these uh, creation of clumps. What started first, the galaxies or clusters of galaxies or structure at smaller scale? I, I'm not an expert in this, so I won't get there. But my point is, yes, after that Big Bang, there, is a, there has been an instability, and this is... Uh, Call it, if you don't want to call it a genes instability, call it the galaxy formation instability, the instability that form galaxies. Well done. <laughs> so another question from Nikki Cochran. Um, how do you define or recognize instability? Uh, this is a, a good point because in order to recognize an instability, you first have to recognize an equilibrium. Uh, again, going back to the bead, uh, you have to recognize that if you put the bead on top of the heel, uh, in principle, there is an equilibrium there. The, the bead would just stay there. And so uh, an instability is simply whatever mechanism avoids uh, an equilibrium to be observed or to persist. This is essentially... This really is what, what, for example, going back to the, uh, to the example of the soft fingers, as I said, one would expect a stratified fluid to be stable. Nothing should happen. And so we can match our expectation with the fact, with the observation that instead these fingering-like patterns emerge. And then, and then that is the beginning of some thought process that would lead us to recognize that, in fact, the stratified state in which you have density uh, organized in surfaces perfectly horizontal and flat is an equilibrium, except that it is unstable. Makes sense. Okay, and um, uh, any more questions from the audience? Francesco. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for the fascinating talk. And um, I guess we'll stop there unless uh, there, there are any more. Uh, and uh, quite a few thank yous in the Q&A section. Uh, sorry, one more question here, another. In, uh, in chemistry, some molecules are less stable than others and react spontaneously. Why? Again, a pretty broad question for you to speculate about, but can you relate it to instabilities? This is actually, uh, this, these are instabilities that do not have a spatial component, although when you have a collection of many, many molecules, you could have a spatial components. And uh, again, I'm not a chemist, uh, in particular, I'm not a molecular chemist, uh, and therefore 
uh, I, I feel on thin ice here trying to answer this this question. But it's still an it's still an instability phenomenon. It and I don't think that there is a, a single specific answer that encompasses all sort of chemical instabilities. So, for example, some compounds become unstable if they are heated up. In this case, uh, at least some of these uh, heating instabilities may be due to Brownian motion, to the fact that when uh, uh, a substance is heated up, its components, its molecules vibrate or, or move freely in, freely in a random motion, and they bump into each other, and they, and they may have in this way enough energy to break the molecular bonds. In other cases, is electrical forces. So, for example, if you have uh, ion compounds like uh, table salt, you throw it into water, it's the electrical forces of the uh, polar molecule of water that simply tear apart the two ions that make uh, the compose the, the salt molecule, the, the chlorine uh, ion and the uh, sodium ion. Uh, so it really depends on the specific uh, chemical reaction that you have in mind. And uh, I'm pretty sure that there is a huge literature in chemistry on the instabilities of specific uh, molecule and specific chemical reaction. But you really need a, chemi a chemist uh, to address this uh, question in detail. I'm sorry about that. Well done. You're, 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 a, you're a good decathlete of, uh, of all of nature, being able to field these two <laughs> questions. Um, Another question here, could we apply instability to cognition? In other words, could instability create thought? Ah, again, <laughs> I, 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 we are roaming in all fields of knowledge and therefore I am a bit out of my waters, but I will give, now I will, give, I, will, I will put my mathematician hat and I will tell you if a cognitive scientist is able, and I, I have really no idea if this is possible, to give me an equation, I can tell you if there is an instability in there. But you will need to mathematize uh, your ideas of cognition. And this is actually a, an important point to make. Uh, uh, there are a lot of concepts uh, uh, that... Uh, are taken from one field of knowledge and are applied in another field of knowledge. And this is actually a very good thing. It's important to look at what the other scientists do and try to get inspiration. However, this process of analogy cannot be automatic. And therefore, it's... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, one should scrutinize very, <clears throat> very carefully if it's possible in the first place to make this analogy. For example, this all happens all the time with chaos theory and uh, with impredictability, with entropy. <clears throat> all these concepts uh, are freely used and transferred from, say, physics to other disciplines. And in some instances, that's a fantastic idea. So, for example, if you take the idea of concept, you transfer it from physics to information theory, huge, huge success. Uh, but in order to have this huge success, you have to uh, go through the painful and painstaking process of uh, checking all the details and go, going through all the proof again. So, I really have no idea about uh, what, how to describe cognition to begin with. I really have, I really don't know. 
But if there is a formal description or cognition of if uh, at any time there will be a formal mathematical uh, description or cognition, then for sure it would be possible to answer the question whether or not uh, instability theory can be applied to that sort of formalism. <clears throat> well done. <laughs> okay, I'm going to allow one more question here that I think is quite a good one to end on. Uh, from Tracy, uh, are there completely stable natural phenomenon such as the completely straight river in nature? Um, this is another good question. Uh, I cannot think of anything that could not be destabilized in some situation. But on the other hand, it is also true that, uh, for example, uh, engineering often try to stay away from instabilities. So let's take the river as an example. Uh, and naturally, a river which uh, is not uh, affected by human activities and uh, flows on a, on a relatively flat land will form meanders. And this is actually the second reason why I picked a river in the image, a river in the Amazon forest, because over there, there are just so few people that it's impossible to conceive the idea that people actually affected that, uh, the, the course of that river. But as soon as you move in more densely populated areas, well, people don't want those instabilities, even because sometimes those instabilities uh, occur in floods, so that's under the form of floods. And therefore, uh, they create uh, origins, they create uh, structure, they, they create, uh, they make sure that the river flows where they want it to flow. And uh, in some sense, they stabilize the instability. They remove the instability out of the picture because they don't want to cope with that. Uh, this occurs a lot of times, although not all the times. So, for example, uh, airplanes. Airplanes have uh, uh, wings that are slightly uh, at an angle. They, they are not completely flat. They are slightly at an angle because that stabilizes the, the flight of the plane. If there is a little bit of wobbling in the plane, <coughs> the uh, wing that gets tilted towards, towards the ground gets more lift and therefore it goes up. If the angle were actually in the opposite direction, the airplane would be unstable. Now, of course, it makes engineering sense, in particular for civilian airplanes, to draw away that, 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 the possibility of that instability, just make it stable. So a lot of uh, uh, things that are built by humans are built in such a way as to be stable. By no means all, all of them. For example, some fighter planes are built in such a way as to be slightly unstable because that makes them more maneuverable. But uh, you wouldn't want to fly it on such plane. Can I, can I offer just a follow-up to that? To, that you could also argue that nature's um, yeah, promotion of instability, its evolution towards stable structures, that the stable structures that evolves to are fairly stable, just as once the bead's fallen into the well. So, you know, there's a process that, that things go through, but, you know, I, I suppose it depend, depends on the perspective and what the initial conditions, which is sort of what you're talking about engineering. Uh, in some systems, you try to start from the beginning if you're creating them, but nature usually doesn't start stable. 
So. Yeah, I guess this is another way to answer the, 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 the same question. If you wait long enough, eventually every instability will die away, although yeah. the process may take a very long time. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Uh, those were great questions and a great talk. And I hope everybody has a good evening. Uh, and uh, thank you again for attending. And thank you, Francesca, for the talk. Thank you very much, sir. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.